Would you join with me in prayer again? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word that never changes. I thank you for your truth that never changes. I thank you that you're still teaching us the same lessons 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later, than the portions of Scripture we're reading. Because the same truths are true of us as human beings. So I pray, Lord, help us to learn and to glean and to grow and to apply. Fill us with your Spirit. Open our hearts up to you even as we open up your word to us. In Jesus' name, work in us. Amen. I heard it said many, many years ago, and as people have visited the Middle East, I've actually asked them to confirm this, and and at least two different people have confirmed this in their visits. But apparently, in the Middle East, contrary to what you might see in some paintings, um, Middle Eastern shepherds don't lead their flocks from behind like they do in Europe. They tend to lead from up front. The staff is not there to push the sheep along, it's usually there to protect them from predators and things. Maybe a nudge here and there. There's a story that somebody told that predicated all this in my mind, where a a tour guide was explaining all this to her tour group, and and, and she said, yes, you'll never see a, a shepherd behind the sheep, pushing them along. And then one of the tourists pointed out at the window and said, that guy is. And she looked out, and sure enough, there's a shepherd smacking the sheep, smacking them from behind. And so she actually stopped the bus, got out, and went and talked to the shepherd. She got back in, and she was chuckling. And the people were like, okay, so why is this different than what you just told us? She's, no, 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 no. He wasn't a shepherd. He's a butcher. <laughs> I want you, as we go back into First Peter, to keep in mind this basic image Godly leaders, biblical leaders, don't lead from behind with a whip. They lead from out front with a banner. They lead by example. That's what they're designed to do. That's what they meant to do. And when Jesus says, I want you to feed my sheep, I want you to be a shepherd, that doesn't just mean make sure you push those dumb sheep along. And by the way, yes, sheep are stupid but that you say you are yourself a sheep and I'd like you to be an example. So turn with me in your Bible. So it's 1 Peter chapter 5. I know that sort of leadership is more than just a little bit harder than the other, but it does have the benefit of being biblical. If you don't have your Bibles with you, there's, there's ones in the pews in front of you. Throughout this whole letter, Peter has been reminding his audience, all of us really, That this world is not our home. We are just passing through this place on our way to eternity. But why? Why has he been writing this? You might say, well, because it's true. And it is. It's theologically true. But every word that's ever come out of your mouth did so for a reason. Why is Peter writing this? And I've made the argument over the last couple of weeks that from chapter 1 through to the end of this letter, all of this has been dealing with the problem of suffering. If God is good, if God is sovereign, why does life stink so often? Why do bad things happen? Not just why do bad things happen to good people, why do bad things happen? Why am I experiencing pain? 
Why does Peoria have a week like this? Why does the world have a, have a last couple of years like this? It's amazing how many people are like, wow, the last three years, I'm just reminded the world is kind of a broken place. I'm like, uh, did you not notice that? How did you not notice that? It's always been a broken place. But there are moments of transition where we go, oh, wait, there are terrorists because they finally attacked us. Oh, wait, there are killings because they finally affect us. Oh, wait. Peter says, all the time, everywhere, the world is a broken place. You're just passing through. Don't be comfortable here. We go, right. <gasps> Wait, today I'm reminded that the world is a broken place. It always has been. It always has been. In fact, as we end this letter, as he ends his letter, in these last couple of verses, he uses the word suffer three times. I think that's statistically significant. For that matter, go back and look at all the points that he's been making throughout this entire letter and think of them in the context of people trying to deal with persecution where they're at. He argues this life is not our end goal. It's just a, it's just a shadow play. It's just a blip. It's a speed bump on the road to eternity. But God is sovereign. And all of this that we go through, all of this was known by God long before any of it came to pass. You may be built out of temporary stuff, but you yourself, your spirit, your soul is imperishable, having been born again of something that this world can never destroy. Think of that in the context of people who are like, well, I'm watching people I love being killed right and left. Why is that? And he's like, but they can't destroy you. They can rip down your body, but not you. So be prepared for action. Peter repeatedly reminded us that this world should be foreign to us, not comfortable. Surely the past week has reminded us of that, but as I was just talking to somebody, it's, it shouldn't be reminding us in substance, maybe just a matter of degrees. Maybe it's just in sharper focus, but the substance of that truth should have always been there. We are square pegs in round holes. This world is not our home. Don't let it shave off your square sides cut through its round holes. Chapter 1, verse 11. Peter specific chapter 1, first first chapter of his letter. He talks specifically about Christ's suffering, didn't he? Chapter 2, verse 21, he talks specifically about Christ's suffering, right? Chapter 3, verse 18, he talks specifically about Christ's suffering and how we will also suffer but that we can still be blessed, we can still be joyful in the midst of it. Chapter 4, verses 1, verse 13, he talks specifically about Christ's suffering. Use the word suffering seven times and told us to follow Christ's model and have the right attitude about life. In chapter 5, what do you think he's probably going to talk about? Not just suffering. Chapter 5, verse 1, to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, as a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He doesn't even get out of the very first verse of his end here before reminding us of Christ's suffering. There's a theme here. And if any of us go, yeah, but I didn't know that was going to you know, apply to us, you've not been reading. Just in case you thought it was me beating a dead horse or me just pounding on this thing and being redundant. No, I'm beating Peter's dead horse. I'm just putting a spotlight on what Peter keeps saying. In 
And before I get going, all that could make us feel like this letter, if it's been every chapter, suffering, 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 suffering. It could be like, wow, this, 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 this first Peter thing has just been unrelentingly, unremittingly downer. He's just so down about life. He's so nihilistic. He's so negative. That's not the way I've been reading first Peter at all. Throughout all of this, he keeps going, yeah, isn't God great? Isn't there something beyond this life that's so awesome? Don't you have something that you can share? Always be, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone asks you for the truth of the darkness of this world. Yes? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that you have. He's writing from Rome. There's no darker place on the planet than Rome. That's the seat of everything that is against the church right now. And he says, hey, I'm going to be positive. I know firsthand just how bad things can get. But I'm going to follow my own advice. I'm going to take this eternal long ball view. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering. I am. That's true. But as one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. I can't even get finished talking about Christ's suffering before I talk about, yeah, but that's not it. That's not the entirety of it. It's not what I choose to focus on. Not the pain, but the goal. He would have been a great physical rehab nurse. You know? Yes, I know this is uncomfortable, but think about six weeks from now where, where you'll be. If you just keep working on this every day. I know it's uncomfortable now, but next week you'll be able to do this. And three weeks from now you'll be able to do this. Six weeks from now, the end goal. Just keep working on that. But i got to look at, the, at some of the words here. To the elders among you. And that word can get a little confusing. Because um, it's not only in reference to the official role or ministry of elder, like we use the term here at the First Covenant, though it definitely includes that. In context, the term technically just points to those who are older. Not necessarily physically older, but older in the faith. They've been a Christian longer. They're more mature in the faith. They're people that God can trust with this, who, who understand their role as mature Christians in the faith. So when we talk about elder, it is possible that an elder might be physically younger than somebody who is not an elder in the church. And it doesn't mean that they're saying that the other person is younger or immature. It just means that this person is solid in their faith and we trust that they are going to be a good role model. We trust that they know what they're doing. We're putting confidence in them. So to the elders among you, to those who are mature in their faith, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a fellow witness of Christ's sufferings. The word there literally in Greek is martyr. To a fellow witness of Christ's suffering. Peter, one of the twelve, personal friend of Jesus Christ, the rock on whom Christ promised to build his church. And Peter doesn't say, I am Peter, the great leader. I am Peter, the rock. He didn't call John a rock. I am the rock. doesn't talk about, I'm the part of the inner circle. Me and James, we're making all these decisions. He just says, I'm just like you. I'm a fellow elder. I'm a fellow witness. I'm a fellow martyr. I'm just like you guys. He picks up a banner instead of a whip. He steps out in front, not from behind, but in front, but not too far in front. It's not an elder's job to rule the church. It's his job to facilitate and grow and heal. Anyway, so he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, as a fellow witness 
of Christ's suffering, but also as one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Because I, I want to focus on that. Yes, Jesus died, but then he conquered death. He didn't stay dead. And he's coming again. Do you, do you believe that? I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and I want you to genuinely think before you answer. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Sovereign Son of God, God in the flesh. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even God in the flesh suffered in this world? Do you believe he died even though he was innocent? Do you believe that in the midst of that suffering, he didn't lash back at the people who were making him suffer? Do you believe that the Bible tells us he left us an example to follow? Do you believe that he rose again and is alive? Do you believe that he is coming again? Now, this last one is not a yes or no question. If you actually believe all of that, how should that affect the way you deal with discomforts, pain, and suffering in this life today? Because if that doesn't change the way you look at it, all those other questions and your answers are effectively pointless. Our Lord, who left us an example, also suffered, even though he didn't deserve it. So when you go, I didn't deserve this, you're in good company. He suffered more than you ever will. He didn't lash back. Yeah, but he didn't have somebody who was calling him a twerp. No, he had somebody driving nails into his flesh. He had the whole sins of the world placed on his shoulders. You're right. He wasn't going through your, my neighbor called me a twerp. And this life is not all there is. And this world won't stay this way. How does that affect the way you deal with that today? I'm telling you, as a fellow elder, as a fellow witness, one who is going to share in the glory to be revealed in light of Christ's sufferings and his future glory, I'm telling you guys, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. There's a lot of words for what I do, my job. Uh, Some people are called ministers. That literally just means people who serve. Uh, Priest. um, That would imply that I stand between people and God. Um... Vicar, that literally means I am standing in the place of God on your behalf, vicariously. Um, Reverend, means I am holy enough that I myself should be revered. And pastor, which means shepherd. The only two that are actually biblical are the only two that I really appreciate referring to, and that is, minister and shepherd minister and pastor those are the ones that i like because they're also not only just the only two that are biblical but they're also the ones that are accurately descriptive at its core i'm supposed to be a shepherd for god's flock it's my job to make sure you guys are fed and nurtured and watered and so that you can thrive i can't make you thrive but i can try to nurture you so that you do i can try to protect you from disease and from predators both within and without. I can try, but I can't do that from behind you with a big stick or a whip. I can't do that. And I can't do that way out in front of you saying I'm something different than you. 
because both of those imply the mindset that I'm not just a sheep myself. Technically, I'm not any fundamentally different than anybody else. I'm just, I'm just a sheep. It's not my flock, it's God's flock. I'm just the sheep that God went, okay, wait, um, tag. Could you watch over these? I'm going to go home for a minute. I'll be back in a sec. I'm like, oh, okay. That's it. That's my job in a nutshell. And anything else is reading too much into it. Those of you who are mature in the faith, please keep the same mindset. You're just sheep, but you're an under-shepherd to the good shepherd, to the real shepherd. It's not your job to keep those sheep under your thumb. It's not your job to keep them under your jurisdiction. It's your job to keep them under your care. I don't care whether it's a pretty sheep or an ugly sheep. I don't know how many times people... No, I'll say it this way. I don't know how many times Wendy has specifically heard me say this. Though I may disagree with people, I may sharply contend and take a contrary position with somebody, I absolutely, categorically will not fight the sheep under my care. I will not do it. I won't do it, no matter how much I will do by my nature. I am not by my nature particularly pacifistic. It's just not who I am. I am by my theology absolutely pacifistic. I will not take up arms to harm another sheep. I won't do it. I just won't do it. It's the antithesis of what a true leader is. I'm sorry. For those of you who are mature in the faith, consider yourselves the loving shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. It's an immense privilege to nurture God's flock, but it's also a a tremendous responsibility, not just because it's God's flock and you don't want to mess up, but I can't help but think of the context of Peter's call. The guy who's writing, be a shepherd, right? Do you remember maybe where he got that notion? Because he wasn't a shepherd, right? He was a fisherman. So where did this notion of being a shepherd indelibly get implanted in his mind? I remember that there was one point, I don't know if you recall this, where he denied Jesus three times in rapid succession, right? And Jesus sought him out. The ugliest sheep, right? Isn't he the ugliest of the 11 sheep left behind? Because he clearly denied Jesus three times. Jesus looked at him at one point and said, get behind me, Satan, an ugly sheep. Jesus sought him out and gave him a chance to make, up, make that up. In John chapter 21, when they'd finished eating this breakfast that Jesus had made for all the disciples by the lakeshore, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said immediately. Absolutely, yeah. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, then feed my little lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you, do you truly love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And I don't know whether Jesus said these in rapid succession or whether there was a question and then they ate some fish and then there's another question and they had some bread and they told a joke and then there was a third question. I don't know. But three times over, third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my 
sheep. There's a lot of elements to that exchange, and we've, we've discussed it so many times before. But today, remind yourself of this core repeated theme that if we are mature Christians and if we genuinely love Jesus Christ, he point blank repeatedly calls us to love and to take care of his sheep, to feed his beloved little lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. Our attitude as leaders has to be the same as that kind of shepherding. Jesus like, Peter, you, you know how to get new people. You know how to fish. But I want you to shepherd. Our attitude has to be to love those whom Christ loved and to shepherd those whom he shepherded. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Help me out here. Hasn't Peter several times in this letter talked about submission in different ways? Submitting yourself to others? Is there a more pointed submission than being willing to lay down your life for the sheep? Is there anybody in the body that should be more submissive than the ones leading so when people say, I just, I really am uncomfortable with the submission passages, get past yourself. If anybody should struggle with that, it should be me, because I'm the one painting the target on myself saying I should be the most submissive. Those of you who are mature in the faith, consider yourselves the loving shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers, which is a literal translation of the Greek, overseers, supervisors, however you want to look at that. But they're specifically people who watch over, watch around. They're not people that are looking over somebody's shoulder, like we think of a supervisor with a clipboard now. It's somebody who is always looking out for the whole thing. It's looking beyond just this sheep, but is looking at this sheep to make sure they're okay. They're looking over all of them, to look over and make sure there are no wolves around. Overwatch. Not because you have to, not because you must, but because you're willing, you want to, as God wants you to be. I want you to have the right attitude. Not, not just the what, not just the how, but the why. Not grumpily, not out of a sense of duty and obligation, but because you want to. You want to serve Christ. You want to love. Not because you're greedy for money, not for personal gain or prestige. I'm looking at you megachurches. Not because you go, well, this way I get the big house and all the, all the trappings that come with it but eager to serve. You lead because you want to be a servant. You lead because you want to be a slave of all the rest. Maybe not necessarily you're eager to be an elder. In fact, the elders in our church would know that we tend to sit there and pull out the people who don't necessarily want to be an elder. The ones that go, I want to be in charge. We tend to go, yeah, maybe not. It's the people who go, I just want to serve. How can I help? And we go, well, you're very mature. At which point they should stiffen and go, no, no, no. And you go, would you like to be an elder? No! I love that all four of our elders go, if you want, I could be an elder, sure. Some ones are like, well, why isn't he now? I want him to be, oh, sure, why, why not this person? Why don't I, let's get this person. I'm like, maybe, maybe percolate a little longer. Not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And that's got the same connotation in Greek that it does in the English. 
not conquering, not whipping, not domineering, but carrying a banner to be followed from out front, but not too far out front. And when the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the shepherd whose flock this actually is, when the real shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. But that mindset requires an eternal perspective, focused on rewards that are just beyond this place, beyond money, beyond success, beyond a church size, beyond personal recognition. I don't want things named after me. I want things named after Christ. I don't want the church of Kevin. I don't want the Kevin wing of the church. I want the church of Christ. I want us to live like Christians. Of course, even then, in in Revelation chapter 4, what do we see the elders do with the crowns they're given? I've been given crowns. I'm an elder with the good seats. What do they do? They get off their seats, they lay flat on the ground and fling their, their crowns to the ground. Because it's not about the good seats or the crowns. It's about doing what God calls us to do and receiving the end goal of our faith to carry out the whole point of why we're here. That's the long ball, eternal perspective that sees heaven as our home, not this place as our home. Why would I ignore the, the priorities of heaven in order to gather for my own edification more and more the priorities of this place? Can't help but think of the guy that prays to be heard in this place. And Christ's response to that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. This place is a place of suffering. I, I, could, I could try to get the best corner of that place, but it's still suffering. I, I could get depressed about it, but I'm only here for a relatively short time. This place is not that great, but it's also not my final destination. Mature Christians, keep this in mind. Verse 5 he says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. And I've got to go back to the Greek, I'm sorry. But in the Greek, we're not talking about physical age again. And they're not even talking about gender here. Your Bible is trying to figure out the best way of explaining it to you in English. But the word here just means new ones, neophytes, you new ones, you young ones. Those of you who are newer to the faith, submit to those who are more mature in the faith. And even that submission is more about respect than obedience. So there's words there that we get caught up on. Oh, young men are supposed to be obedient to old men. He's like, no. You people who are new to the faith, place yourself under the the leadership, under the respect of those who are more mature in the faith. Those who are, I just got finished saying, submitting themselves, for God's sake, to the very lives of their church family, loving the sheep like Christ loved, because Christ did love and because they love Christ. They're going to be laying themselves before you, and if they're going to do that as an example, then you should be laying yourself before them, and everybody should be doing that. If everybody did that, it would work, wouldn't it? If everybody actually respected everybody, if everybody sat there and said, wait a minute, before I react, I should stop and think about this. But marriages fail, and children struggle, and churches split, and people are hurt, and people have their hearts broken, and counselors' offices are filled with people, and haters justify hating and killing, largely because we ignore this. We say, but I want what I want. I want my corner of this. I want this. Whether you're doing that, or somebody did that and hurt you, there's all this woundedness because we ignore this. We're bleeding because we ignore this. 
we abuse, we neglect, we hurt one another, we disrespect our models, we disrespect our peers, we consider ourselves better than the other people around us. Philippians, Paul said, no, 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 don't do anything out of selfish ambition, out of vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do that. And it works if everybody does that, and it's bad if nobody does that, which is ironic because if everybody is like, I want what I want, and I want my little car bit of this, that nearly guarantees that you won't get it then, right? Because somebody else is also striving for that little bit. I want that piece of broken glass. I want that piece of broken glass. Ah, I'll beat you and I will take that piece of broken glass. Look, I have a piece of broken glass. Ha, ah, I win. Because we're self-defeating creatures, right? We wrestle over shiny bits of crystal in the mud because we're self-defeating. But if everybody actually respected everybody else if everybody actually said i'm i want to serve you i want to be here with you it works beautifully marriages mend people are healed churches come back together again it makes sense it even makes sense in your enlightened self-interest that if you want the best for yourself do this you have to think about it, and that's the problem, is that people don't want to think about it because they want that shiny piece of glass. But that's why it's so important to see this life as a community effort. It's why we work as a church in a community effort, why we want to build fellowship, koinonia with one another. It's why we're eating a brown baguette today and playing games. It's why we have small groups. It's why we aren't just sitting there alone in our houses and saying, ah, oh, this is good enough. We, we want to be in community because that's how this works. Mature Christians selflessly shepherding new Christians. So all of you, he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because that's how this life works best. That's how community works best. Which brings me to Botany. You've been hearing about the fires in Hawaii there's one particular banyan tree that's like over 100 years old. My parents were actually there and saw it, and they said, it's magnificent. And everybody's hoping that it survives, because it might not. I don't know if you know much about banyan trees, but they grow a little bit like strawberries. You get this stalk, and then it, the branches go down and touch the ground, and where they touch the ground, they build new stalks that reach out. and grow. It's still one banyan tree, but over several years, it can grow to fill like an acre. And it's one banyan tree. And children play in its branches and people hold meetings there and it's this community center because it's got all this shade and it's beautiful. An entire acre of one tree. But if it dies, nothing grows under a banyan tree. It's got enough shade. Not even grass grows under a banyan tree. So once it's gone, you get an acre of desolation. I mean, it's impressive. It's awesome. But if you want to apply this spiritually, if a church leader, whether that's a deacon or an elder or a ministry spearhead, Sarah, me, Mark, if our ministry is banyan tree, we're involved in everything. Everything revolves around us. Benevolently, I make sure I am the hub of all this, and all this revolves around us. If I get hit by a Buick today, what happens? If that's the ministry I've created, it's all me touching. 
for the glory of Christ, and I do it benevolently, at the end of the day, all that's left is desolation. I'm not saying that banyan trees are bad, but are we consciously grooming our own replacements? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? It's awfully easy to be a banyan tree, and it looks and feels so impressive to do it. You feel like you're really accomplishing. Uh, conversely, you tell you about banana trees. Banana trees, every year, they shoot their seeds out around them to make a new ring of banana trees around them. And then every 12, 14 months, I think, those will then shoot out their seeds to make a ring of banana trees around them. Ironically, it takes about the same amount of time for a banyan tree to fill an acre as it does for banana trees to fill an acre. And banana trees are, are fulfilling an entire ecosystem. They're, they're, they're constantly making new banana trees. One acre of banana trees can produce 50 tons of bananas a year. And when that first banana tree dies, well, there's already banana trees making new banana trees all around it, right? Now, it's, it's not as impressive to be a banana tree among banana trees. To be just a sheep among sheep. But to be a shepherd, y'all, my sheep, come, find shade under my banyan tree. That's impressive. Biblically, I'd rather be a banana tree that everybody forgets. If those are my two options, I'd rather be a banana tree that everybody forgets. But the legacy still keeps going on. My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren in the faith keep producing children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Because instead of a desolation in, in the form of, a, of an empty acre, I've got a full acre. What kind of church minister do you want to be? What kind of a leader do you want to be? Do you want to be a banyan tree? Do you want to be a banana tree? I don't want... I do want to make a difference in this world, but I don't want the difference to be, I don't want that footprint to be in my shape. Ideally, I want that footprint to be in Christ's shape. That's the way I want to walk. But I don't always do that right. That's what I want. Maybe you're a banyan tree and you need to go, da, 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 what am I doing? Maybe you're a banana tree and you go, yep, that's what I'm trying to do. Maybe you're a sapling. Like, I'm still pretty new at this. Okay. Grow. Be nurtured. Find a way to make sure that you keep getting nurtured. Maybe you're just a seed going, I want to grow up to be a sapling. Fine. But surround yourself with banana trees that'll help you. Don't get me wrong. Banyan trees are not evil. But once they're gone, they're gone. I don't want to be that. So think about the banana grove that Jesus created that's still making new banana trees 2,000 years later. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Like Jesus did when he clothed himself with a servant's apron and washed our feet. Build that community. Because, as Peter quotes from Proverbs, he loves Proverbs. He keeps quoting Proverbs. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That funky upside-down backwards topography of the kingdom of God that if you, if you want to be a good leader, you should strive to be a servant. That upside-down backwards way of thinking. Or is it, or is it that we are upside down and backwards in the way we are thinking of it? 
And God's just reminding us of the way he designed it. Anyway, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Why? So that he may lift you up in good time. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, not by men, but by God himself. Cast all your anxiety on him. Literally, humble yourselves by casting all of your anxiety on him. How is giving him your anxieties humility? Oh, let me rephrase that. How is hanging on to your anxieties pride? This is important. I can't just give it to God. I have to do it. Oh. Cast all your anxiety on him. Humble yourselves by casting all your anxieties on him, even in the midst of suffering. Why? Because he cares for you. He loves you, your children, your life, your well-being, your church. He loves you far more than you ever could, so trust him. Be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you're in a war zone and you have to realize that. And it shouldn't take a week like this to remind you of that. Just because somebody didn't throw a hand grenade at you yesterday does not mean you're not still on a battlefield. So stay in condition red, alert, not naive, faithful, not frightened. Satan is fighting a losing battle, and he knows it, and that makes him frightened. That makes him desperate. And there's nothing in nature more dangerous than a wounded, desperate predator. So resist him. Don't go pick a fight with him, but make a stand against him. Take a stand against him. Stand firm in your faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. You're not alone, and neither are they. And I don't want to pretend that nobody suffers, or that a lack of suffering, the comfort is the natural state. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that unmerited favor, who called you to eternal glory, that long ball eternal perspective, after you've suffered for a little while in this blip, this speed bump, suffered a little while to temper you, God will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast, not just for your sake, but so that to him may be the power forever and ever. Amen. I've said it before. I don't plan to get out of this life alive. I would love to be surprised at that. But I don't plan to get out of this life alive. So the question isn't, how will God get me out of this hard situation or help me to avoid this pain? I'd like that. But at some point in every life, the answer is, he won't. You'll die from this. Nope, you don't get out of this one. So it's self-defeating if all I ever do is say, If God is really there, he'll get me out of this pain and anguish. The question really is, how can I run my race, even in the midst of pain and anguish, with the right heart? How do I run my race and end my race with my torch lit, with my faith active and strong and intact? What legacy will my life leave behind for the next bunch of banana trees? Do I lead by pushing or do I lead by example? Look at the last couple of verses. Let's end this. With the help of Silas, Peter writes, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand, first, stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, by that he means Rome, because he's like, it's basically Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, as so does my brother, or my son, Mark. That's Mark who wrote the first gospel. The gospel of Mark. I love this. Think about this. He's like, 
in the midst of suffering, here in Rome, what I'm thinking of is Babylon, he says, I'm writing this letter to you, suffering, 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 suffering. Why did I write it? For encouragement. I'm writing this to encourage you. Not that everything's going to be okay, but everything is already okay. But we're being crucified. Uh-huh. I wasn't planning to get out of this life alive anyway. But God's grace isn't about preserving your life or your comfort levels. It's about saving your soul and healing your heart. So Peter writes a letter all about suffering, beginning with suffering and ending with suffering and talking about suffering and says, I want to encourage you. Even Christ suffered. And his suffering, though it's real and painful, was still a victory, wasn't it? He proclaimed a victory in it. So arm yourselves with the same attitude as you go through this. Stand fast against the forces of this world that would try to break you and break your faith. Remember that this life, this suffering, is just a blip. We're passing through here on our way going home. Think of eternity. Which part of this afternoon is going to echo through eternity? 10,000 years from now. Your relative comfort levels? Whether somebody burned your food? Or the attitude with which you reacted to that? What lasts? Work on being shepherds rather than rulers. Build a banana tree legacy. Silas served with Paul in Corinth and Philippi, right? And now Peter is discipling him as a brother. John Mark fizzled in his first mission so that Paul and Barnabas was working with him. Paul left him behind as a result. And now Peter is discipling it as if Mark was his own son. Peter is going, banana tree, banana tree, banana tree, banana tree, banana tree, banana tree. The rock said, no, not banyan tree, banana tree. What kind of legacy is he leaving behind? Cult leaders love to be banyan trees so that when they're gone, everybody remembers that they're the ones that brought us life and now there's only empty desolation without them. Biblical leaders say, banana tree. Banana tree. Peter took this seriously because he is a good theologian. He's a great evangelist, but at his core, he's a loving shepherd which makes that, that interaction with Jesus by the lake shore so powerful to me. That's the one thing Jesus asked him to be. Be a good shepherd. And everything we see from Peter after that is he went, yes. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love one another well. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And I can think of no better way to end a letter about suffering than that. Life is a battlefield, a mission field. Ain't none of us getting out of here alive. It cannot be about getting the shinier shard of this broken world or the larger piece of the tainted pie or the most comfortable seat in the war zone. Be a banana tree rather than a banyan tree. Think of others and our legacy. Glorify Christ and seek peace and pursue it as far as it's up to you. Always remember that even in the midst of battle, you can have joy, you can have peace, you can have love, you can rest in that. If you look with better eyes, not if you shut your eyes, look with better eyes don't confuse circumstances with reality amen let's pray dear lord i thank you so much i thank you that you never candy coat you never push for ignorance nor do you ever wallow in dissolution i thank you that you love and that love is true, and it speaks truth, and it speaks it in love. I thank you, Lord.
that you tell us the world will cause suffering because it's broken. That's the first thing you told Adam and Eve is that they would have suffering. I pray, Lord, help us to find joy in the midst of that, love in the midst of that, rest and peace in the midst of that, in the midst of that, and to love one another well, to be your family, your body, your community, to love one another and to love those around us. Because in this world there are people who are hurt because they're victims and there are people who are so hurt that they victimize others. Thank you for telling us that we get to be the sheep who heal one another. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.